This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products. And I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession. And 5.11 were founded on clothing the tactical athletes. So they went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 511 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all their other great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well, their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So, 5.11 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So, use the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com. That's 511tactical.com. And to hear even more about 511, their mission, their products, and their genesis, listen to my interview with their CEO and co-founder, Francisco Morales, on episode 338 of this podcast. This episode is brought to you by GovX. And as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself. And GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX Gives Back. Every month, they're going to sell a different patch, and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, register for your free membership, and save every single time you purchase. Welcome to episode 399 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show Scott Geiselhart. Now, Scott is a veteran firefighter with a very powerful story. So he leads us through his early childhood, finding himself addicted to meth, how that affected him in the fire service, the therapies that worked, the therapies that didn't work, and ultimately to where he is now as a peer support counselor himself. So as with many of my guests, an incredibly powerful story that I'm sure took a lot of courage to tell. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, Please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, 
leave feedback and leave a rating. Every single rating, every comment that you lead, obviously, especially if it's positive, really helps elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And with stories like Scott's today, these are literally episodes that will save a life. And this is a free library for you individually, organizationally. So all I ask is that you pay it forward and help share these incredibly powerful stories. So with that being said, I introduce to you Scott Geiselhart. Enjoy. Scott, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you for having me. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Um, today I'm in South Dakota, Mobridge, South Dakota. I'm uh, on vacation. Brilliant. And you said it was your um, girlfriend's father's birthday, is that right? Yes, his 80th birthday a couple oh. days ago. Well, let's say happy birthday to him on this recording then. <laughs> All right, so I'd like to start at the very beginning. So tell me, where were you born? And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Um, I was born in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota. Um, Happy family. I have uh, two older sisters, three older brothers, and one younger brother. Um, And it's a resort town, and my parents happened to own a motel right down on the local beach. So it was it was a really good bringing up, and we had a big city park and all sorts of things to do. So it was like we we grew up in a playland. Um, but we also, you know, at the motel, as soon as we could walk, we were either emptying garbages and work our way up doing things at the motel. Brilliant. Now, as as you're probably aware now, kind of really being uh, engrossed in the mental health side, um, childhood trauma does factor into some of the men and women that we see struggle later in their career. Was there any element of your childhood that you can contribute, uh, attribute to that? Or as it, like you said, was it a pretty, pretty good childhood overall? Um, it was, it was a really good childhood. However, and I, I realized this later that, um, a lot of what affected me was that my dad was, when I was born, my dad was 50 years old and, um, I didn't realize fully, I knew if something wasn't right, but I didn't get close to him because he always had gout or he had kidney stones or some minor things. And so I've seen him as kind of dying all the time in my mind when I was really, really young and I didn't want to be hurt. So I wasn't as close to my dad and my, my parents as I, I wish I would have been because of the age factor. And, and in my mind, I didn't want to get hurt. See, it's so interesting. Like everyone, everyone's version of, of you know trauma or contributing factors is different and, and again it's not saying oh well, you had an issue later in your career because of this thing but i've had people on that it was they were the middle child and you know the first child was adored and the last child was adored and they felt like you know they they were kind of the the black sheep of the family you know and some had obviously more acute trauma or abuse that kind of thing but but even that i mean I can relate that, and I, and I mean this in a, in a positive way, but my wife, she was kind of traumatized from losing um, her previous dog who got hit by a car, and she was so heartbroken, she put up this wall for getting another animal. So when we got together, it literally took her about five years before she really started allowing herself to get close to, to my dog, who she adores now. But it's interesting how that psychology kind of factored in with your your, your dad. 
Yeah. And it carried out through my whole life, you know, even with girlfriends or even having a pet. I just never had a pet because they die. Yeah. It's crazy, isn't yeah. it? I was just looking at the the, yeah. the end. Now, where, yeah. where, where do you think that, that psychology came from as a young boy? I mean, I understand it, but is there anything you look back now and, and see where it was nurtured, where those seeds were sown, anything like that? Um, not a hundred percent, but I do know that my, on my dad's side, especially, um, he was like young, one of the younger sons. So, I mean, my, my uncles and aunts were really old. Um, and a lot of times they, you know, people would mistakenly call my dad, my grandpa. So, it, you know, it just kind of into my mind, you know, the death of going to funerals, you know, or hearing a funerals of my dad losing brothers and sisters, you know, and it's like, well, he's next. So. Yeah. I'm just not going to get close. It's, it's really interesting. I mean, it's sad, you know, but interesting and sad at the same time. Um, what he, a, what he a- lived until he lived until he was 80 years old. So I was 30 when he passed away, and I had a lot of regrets for not being closer to him. Yeah. Well, I mean, what a, what a huge lesson on fear, though. We always fear the unknown, the what if, and, and how many times are we told by great people that, you know, most of what we fear never happens? Yes. Yeah. And I got to the point where I was focused on, you know, and this went on through my career once I became a firefighter, but I, I was focused on death and not life. I didn't take advantage of the time I had with him. I just focused, well, one day he's not going to be here and I've got to, you know, I just don't want to be hurt and I don't want to cry and things like that. Yeah. No, and it's understandable. That's the thing. It really, that psychology is understandable. You know, it doesn't make it healthy, but you can understand if that's what you're, entrenched in as a young child why that would be you know why it would make sense um what about uh sports were you an athlete when you were a child um not too much i was a diver on the swim team um for a couple years um i was physically active but i never really got into sports in the competition i was in boy scouts um and did a lot of hunting fishing a lot of fishing um mostly with my little brother okay well then speaking of the diving so so you have this kind of mortality awareness on one side in this fear well jumping off a high board <laughs> seems to be quite a, you know a, an interesting choice of sports for for someone where fear is obviously playing a part in their childhood yeah and it was on the swim team so it was just a one meter board okay so it wasn't really a high, high board gotcha and, like and springboard it, it was, and looking back at it, I was the only diver on the whole swim team. So it was like the swim team and then me, you know, because it was one event in there and I had it all to myself. And so I was kind of, I was, I was a, I'd say I was a loner. So you were two years undefeated then? Well, no, because <laughs> yeah, on my own swim team, yeah. Brilliant. All right. Well, then um, what about career aspirations? When you were at that school age, what were you dreaming of becoming one day? Um, I thought about being a police officer. Um, I just, I, in fact, when I got done with high school, that's where I was going to go is to law school and, and become a police officer. Cause that's, I just had so much respect for him. And had you got any law enforcement or, um, firefighters in your extended family? No, none. No. Right. Okay. So then walk me through graduating and, and the kind of career path that you did take. Um, I didn't go to school. I ended up uh, working. I went to Minneapolis, St. Paul for six months, tried to find jobs down there, and I found some, you know, just some basic jobs and 
and big city wasn't for me. So I came back to the Detroit Lakes and started working in a turkey hatchery. And I worked there for like six years before they closed down. And then uh, they they, closed, they went out of business. They shut down. So I actually got some free schooling out of that. Um, so I went to become a auto mechanic. I went to mechanic school. And right out of that, I got a job at a dealership and worked there for about six years. And after that, I went and built my own shop. And 98, I built my own shop and kind of went off and did my own thing with my shop. And I, I also moved to a different town. Um, I moved to Frazee, Minnesota in about, uh, I think it was like 90, 94. Brilliant. Now, what about the uh, becoming self-employed, going from working in a turkey hatchery to then working for a dealership as a mechanic? What was that like for you? I mean, so again, with the whole fear element, that seems like quite a bold move. Yeah, I loved it. I just loved working for myself and having having my own shop and being able to call the shots and um, take time off with my kids uh, once they were born and spend a little family time. But um, yeah, it wasn't all cut out to be the fun stuff either because there was bills you had to pay and had to learn to budget a lot. Um, and deal with customers, which I think being brought up in a motel, you know, I was constantly around the customers. And so that really helped. So I could, and my, communi- my communication skills were awesome. They, when, when I came to sit down and talk with my clients or my customers and, um, I, I, I had a, I've, I got a big heart too. I mean, I, I didn't want to screw anybody over. You know, I, that's kind of why I went into business for myself. I knew I could do it cheaper. And the customers would get more bang for their buck. Right. Did you did you see that? I mean, obviously, as a person who's not in the mechanic industry at all, you know, we hear some horror stories of, of people getting ripped off. I think I've been the recipient of at least one with uh, one of my ex-wife's cars. Did you see that side in in your time prior to opening your own business? Um, sort of. I mean, dealerships have a lot of overhead. So they have to charge that extra dollar. Plus, they're working on the newer vehicles. Um, you know, there's reasons they charge a lot more money. Um, but yeah, what I did see with some of the private shops were there was a lot of un, you know dishonest employees and owners that would take advantage of people. And and I guess I've never really been too much in it for the money. I've always kind of just wanted to help people. That's probably why I become a firefighter. Yeah. No, I'm sure. Well, that, that's the next question. So, so tell me about your journey into firefighting. Um, started back when I was at the dealership. Um, one of the main guys at the dealership was on the Frazee fire department. And after I moved to Frazee, he approached me and said, Hey, why don't you put an app in for the fire department? And I never thought about being on a fire, fire, fire department. Um, but I did, I put the app in and they accepted me and yeah, the rest, I was in 95 and it just, it felt so right. I mean, I got to know the people in the community a lot better. He also helped me, the same guy helped me get into the Shriners. Um, I ended up being the president of the sportsman club in a small town, ended up getting on the city council. So I got really active in the, in the town and in the community Beautiful. and also a shop owner. So, Yeah. Now, what about the um, phrasing? So it was in a volunteer um, uh, position? Yeah, it's all paid on call. So we get, we didn't get paid unless we were on a fire call and, you know, it's not a whole lot of money when you do that, but it's just, yeah, so it's basically volunteer. 
Um, 28 firefighters was, I think, the max that we can have on our fire department normally, right around the 25 mark. Um, small town, 1,300 population. Um, yeah, kind of when, when I got on in 95, it was pretty much structure fires. We'd go on grass fires. They'd go to the car accidents, but we didn't really have tools to do any extrication. We had maybe a port, port of power, and that's it. Right. And what was the frequency of calls? Um, anywhere from 60 to 75 a year. It's not that much. But, you know, with the small communities, that was all kind of within our community there. And it could be anything from structure fires to, you know, something as simple as a carbon monoxide detector. Yeah. Now, one thing that I've, I've learned from, you know, several volunteers that have been on here that is different from a lot of us in the municipal side or the wildland side is that most of the times when you're running on a call that's in your own town, possibly with people that you know. So were there any like memorable um, calls that really kind of struck you because, because it was so close to home? Oh, there's several. Yeah, it's, it's nothing for us to go out and, you know, it's almost like everybody knew everybody in the town or the community. So somebody knew somebody that was an accident, you know, unless they were traveling through. We had, we had two highways, state highways that come through our town, a river. We got lots of lakes. We got the railroad. We've got the uh, school district for Frazee and Vergus that's in Frazee. So we have the buses that go on, you know, they're constantly coming and going every day. So it, it was a busy little town for the size of it. There's a lot of, lot of activity. We had the nursing home, a really good-sized nursing home there, too. So. so what are some of the calls that, that you know, you, you would almost define as a career call that you had while you were um, with Frazee? Well, my first call on the fire department was the Bowling Alley fire, which destroyed a large Main Street Bowling Alley. Um, that, was, that was a big fire. Uh, we saved the buildings. We saved pretty much the buildings around it, which it could have easily taken the whole block. Um, thank God we had mutual aid. We had, uh, I don't know, probably five, six towns there fighting that one. Um, and then maybe 10 years after that, right across the street, the cafe burnt down. And this is right downtown, so the buildings are right up against each other. And that one, again, we were lucky we didn't lose you know half a block because all the buildings are connected. Um, and then the accident calls. Those are the ones that that really got to me and affected me because it was, you know, we've seen a lot more fatalities in that. Um, we've, we lost some people in fires, you know, and that's kind of what we trained for. We, when I was a firefighter, okay, that's, I figured we we're going to see that, but the car accidents is what really got, they were gruesome and I, I did, we weren't prepared for that. At least I wasn't. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, so obviously, you know, it, it's, it's all well and good to say, Oh, you know, this career department has all this training, all these tools, you know, and, and I, I'm a big advocate for most of the volunteer departments in the country becoming career because, you know, this is 2020. We're an extremely affluent country. I get the absolute remote places of the country, but there are places, you know, literally in suburban areas of, of giant cities that still have volunteer fire departments, which I think is, is crazy. I think we should be paying those men and women, you know, to train and, and to show up. Um, what was the, the actual operational training like for you? And then tell me about the mental health element when you first came on as well, if any. Um, the mental health stuff, I, I, I knew nothing about mental health. 
Um, on the fire department, we didn't talk about mental health. We talked about the training, talking about car. You know, when I got on, we didn't even cut cut people out of cars. We didn't have the jaws of life. Um, so even when we we're training for that to be doing auto extrication and and ice water rescues, um, nothing was talked about about hey, we're going to be coming across some of this stuff and it's going to affect you. You know, and it's, that's okay. It's natural. It's, you know, this, this, we're human. We're not superheroes. And we never talked about that part of it. So once we started going on the, on the accidents, unfortunately, we had a, a really bad string of accidents. And we lost a lot of people in car accidents. And, and here, you know, in my mind, I'm sitting there thinking, well, we're training on this stuff. They tell us if we get these people out of the water, out of the ice water within an hour, and especially if they're young, we can revive them. They can go on and have a normal life. You know, they're telling us, you know, here's how you cut them out and you'll get them out and you'll do this, do this, and everything will work out fine. They didn't tell us about the ones that weren't going to live. And those are the ones that really started eating at me. And that's, that's about the only ones I can remember. I couldn't remember the saves. So when we started going on accident calls and in one case, it was, it was a fatality and it was a bartender that served me the drink the night before, you know, a beautiful young lady and full of life. Next morning, there she is dead. You know, <laughs> don't forget that stuff. You know, especially, I guess I'll go a little bit more into that one too, because that was kind of one of them that, that triggered me. And I didn't realize how much that, that accident affected me because the night before when I was talking with her and having some beers and, and she was a bartender that could always have you smiling before she even brought a beer to you. And she had a necklace on. It was a little shoe necklace. And I looked at it and I told myself, I'm going to buy that for my girlfriend at the time of my girlfriend I had. And she told me where she got it. So I went to sleep. I was all excited. I'm going to get up in the morning, go get that necklace. I'm going to surprise my girlfriend. And the pager went off six o'clock in the morning. We go out and it was her. And it was, a, it was a bad accident. I mean, the car was destroyed. And uh, when I went to cut the battery cables, the, uh, the necklace was sitting on top of the battery. And I, had, I helped remove the body. And um, after that, when I was out in bars, I'd be with some friends and girls would walk up, beautiful girls, you know, walk up and start talking to me or whatever. And I'd, I'd just kind of shrug them away and not be the nicest person in the world to them at all, you know, just be mean to them and found out later that it was the necklace that they were wearing that was triggering me, you know, so it's, it's little parts of accidents that I guess they're large parts of accidents that really affect you in everyday life without, without us even knowing it sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And you hit on on an element that I've seen within myself too, which is the inability to save. And, you know, I've been, I was a fireman for 14 years. So I started in, started training in 02. And I don't remember um, much of the conversation. I do remember one in fire school where they showed almost like a gallery of macabre images to kind of prep us for what we were going to see. But I think you hit the nail on the head. I was never really told about the ones we couldn't save. And even in paramedic school, which is a lot more recently, you know, the, the death chapter was almost like glossed over. And you think about it, that's one of the most important chapters for us because how are we supposed to process death ourselves? Um, and how are we supposed to interact with the family? Either that they've seen their loved one has died or that you have to 
go and give them news. I've had it before where, you know, I've taken their husband alive in the back of the rescue. And then by the time we arrive at the hospital, they're dead. So, you know, I think that is a, a area that we as a profession in EMS and in firefighting um, really need to, to do better. And it's not blaming. It's just the evolution of this, this kind of process that we're in is educating people on the inability to save because I, I went 14 years, never saw a cardiac arrest reversed. I had all these people around me that had these saves. I never had a single one in 14 years. Exactly. I think that CPR thing is that's so important too because they teach you and they, they get your hopes up so high. And when, and I've never had to do CPR, but you know, I've seen, I've talked to people that have, and oh my gosh, you know, it's, in fact, one of them went out and did CPR, and an older guy, next, very next call was an infant, did CPR. And a couple hours later, they went out on a guy, they had to administer Narcan, and the guy woke up, spit at him, and tried to punch him. And, <laughs> you know, that's the kind of things a lot of these departments are seeing almost daily is things like that. You, you can't save them all. And yet the ones that, you know, I'm not going to say anybody's life's worth more, but when they wake up and come to and they're spitting at you and swearing at you. It's like, what am I doing? It's almost like God's torturing us, but it, it all has its reasons. Yeah. Well, and there is, there is that irony. Absolutely. Where, I mean, every, like you said, every human life is worth it. And the more I explore all of these incredible stories that I hear on the podcast, you know, the more um, accepting and lenient I am, even of some of the people that today maybe horrible people because you reverse engineer what what their life was up to that point but yeah i mean i'm sure most people out here listening have seen it's it's the drunk driver that walks away unscathed and it's the the people they hit that die you know there's so much injustice out there and to process that as a human being and see that tragedy and i've had the same kind of flash that you had with the necklace with a, a particular call i had with a little girl and there was a blanket over her after she deceased i kind of flashed years later in a theme park because there was the same blanket covering the same age child with the same shoes. So I can absolutely relate. And I think that's that's it. I think we set ourselves up for failure in one respect with this facade that you're going to do compressions and defibrillate and they're going to jump up and give you a hug and a kiss and the family will come visit you with chocolates the next shift, which <laughs> let's just say I never got any chocolates. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. And you know, the, and and the thing is, and was that when that stuff starts affecting us, we don't feel like we can even reach out to, the, to our brothers and sisters on the fire department or wherever, what whatever we're on, because you know it, it feels like we're alone. If we show this, and we have a weakness, and we can't handle our job, which you know, again, I'll say it, we are not superheroes. We're humans, and if we start losing them emotions and feelings, that's dangerous. Or if we feel it we're alone and we're the only ones thinking like this, you know, cause we're not the only ones thinking like this. It, I mean, this job affects us. Absolutely. Well, I, something I've kind of pointed out more recently is, you know, the yin and the yang. So, you know, the yin is, is the, the hard part, you know, that's, that's the, the rugged firefighter, medic, whatever they are, police officer that, you know, has to throw down when the shit hits the fan, you know, but there's the other side, which is the soft compassionate side, which is why we even signed up for this job in the first place. So to ignore that one entire side and think that you're a walking, you know, terminator the whole time, when you think about it, it's insanity because we are empaths. That's why we signed up for you, you know, for, for some people, even, you know, for free 
because we care about human life. So to have that compassionate side, but then think you're not going to react when we have loss, when, you know, when, when there's tragedy is absolute insanity when you think about it. Yeah. All right. Well, you mentioned about, um, you know, the, the struggles that you had. So kind of walk me through your, you know, your, your career as far as a firefighter. Obviously, I know you, you're a mechanic at the same time, but walk me through the timeline of when you started, either you or people around you started to identify that something wasn't right. Okay. Well, I was, I started in 95 as a firefighter. Um, and then because I was a mechanic, they made me an engineer to work on the vehicles. Um, I think it was a little more, more free labor than anything, <laughs> but that's okay. Cause that's what we do. I mean, it's, I wanted to keep the trucks up. Um, and again, I had a girlfriend since 96. So right after I got in the fire department, I had a, got a girlfriend and, um, ended up having two kids with her. Um, and we stayed together for 18 years. But as I was going through this, everything was going great until we started doing the auto extrication. And once we started doing that, that was right after my dad passed away. And my dad was the first body that I've seen dead, a dead body. And I was there when he passed. And it was in hospice. Again, he was 80 years old. So um, his heart just gave out and I was sitting with him in, in our house. And uh, after right after that, all the car accidents started to happen. So it was just, you know, some bad timing, a little of everything. And I never talked about my dad's stuff, about not, you know, fully loving him. And, and I knew things were off because I wasn't really getting close to my girlfriends. You know, and at that time, this girl, I, I was with her for a long time, had, had two kids with her. I never got close to them. And as much as I loved my sons, there seemed like there was a wall with them too. But as the fire career went on and we've seen more of these car accidents and then we started, I mean, the car accidents were bad. I mean, it was burnt up cars with people in them. Um, and again, it was people we knew or you'd walk down the street in a small town and there's a relative or a father or a son of them. And it's pretty hard to avoid it. And then the benefits they have. Um, it's, it's really hard to avoid that stuff in a small town. And um, the nightmares started. Um, after the car accidents, I started seeing, reliving the car accidents and my nightmares. Started replacing the victims with my sons. And my sons would be in there pinned. And I couldn't get them out because the jaws of life wouldn't work. Or I was paralyzed and I couldn't move. Um, and then after a while, after some of these car accidents, and ice water rescues, I started to see my sons falling out of the sky on fire. And then they'd fall into the water and be drowning on fire. And I couldn't help them because I was paralyzed. And and that came from just all the accidents kind of mixing together. Um, the anger, I started getting really angry, um, short-tempered. And, and at the same time, I was running my shop. So I was pretty much a one-man show, but I could uh, I could talk to my customers, run a business, everything was fine. You know, I had a lot of stress, a lot of pressure on me, but more more so, it worked out okay at the business that level. But it was when I was with my girlfriend and my kids that I'd take it out on them. Um, whether I was watching the news or just had a bad day, I'd come home and yell at them. And, you know, the anger just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And I actually thought I was having a split personality. Um, I was this Jekyll and Hyde. And it even reflected with the fire department because 
you know, anybody that was closer to me, I'd, I'd take it out on them. They'd see my true colors. Um, I was always the negative person on the fire for the fire department. We don't need to train for this stuff. You know, same old, same old. Why are we wasting our time? I got better things to do. I was that guy. And um, in 2010, when I built my new repair shop, um, which is a beautiful shop with, I mean, in Minnesota to have heated floors and air conditioning in the same shop, it's just, it's amazing. It was, I designed it because of that. Um, I couldn't handle heat actually. And it started to, the sun started to affect me to where even having the sun on me or in like 90 degree weather, I, I couldn't handle the heat anymore for some reason. I think that was a lot to do with the PTSD, but also around the same time, I started doing a lot of math. And that's something that I, I didn't believe in. I didn't believe in, I, I, I called people burnouts. I mean, I, I had no time for people that did drugs. And that's the way I was brought up. But um, I got into smoking a little marijuana, no big deal. But then when I found out some people I was partying with, they were up all night and I couldn't figure out why they were staying up all night. And then they shared their little secret about meth and I started doing a little meth once in a while and when I was partying, but then when I built the shop in 2010, I needed that extra level of energy to, to stay awake so I could work on the shop more plus work during the day with customers. So I started doing more meth. And um, about the same time, 2010 in that area, we had a, a fatality car accident. And it was a kid coming home from a school event um, after dark, um, it was right around this time of the year, around uh, around the 1st of November. And the car spun out on a curve and went upside down into a, in the ice water. There was a little ice on the edge, and it went just off the lip and went upside down in about three feet of water. And uh, he drowned. But we were called out. We were out there within like 10 minutes of the accident. It was a witnessed accident. So we were out there immediately. And got the Gumby suits on, picture perfect rescue. I mean, it was right by the book. Everything went perfect. We got in the water, broke the window out, reached in. He was unbuckled, so he came out easy. Got him to shore. Medics took him from there. They got him to Fargo. Got a heartbeat. They uh, had him on machines, and you know, again, he was underwater for ten minutes. And the high school kid, that's really good. I mean, that's. We, we had a save. We had a victory. And I was feeling really good about that one. It's like all these other ice water ones that didn't go so good. Um, we got one. We got, you know, with the drownings and the ones that you can't, they come out burnt up and, and end, end up dying a week, two weeks later. This one wasn't going to be like this one. This one we got. We saved this one. And it felt so good. And then uh, about a month later, uh, a firefighter came in and told me that he died from a lung infection. And it was just like, just like somebody who took the air right out of me, it kicked me in the guts because I was the one that killed him. And that's what I told myself. I said, I should have never been on that call. I'm jinxed. Every time I'm on calls, people die. I felt like the Grim Reaper. I told myself that before even. And here was this car accident. He was supposed to live, but he died. I told myself I was the one that killed him because I was the one that was in the water. I was the one that helped break the window reached through the window and I grabbed him and I pulled him through. They pulled me to shore with him on my chest. And somehow I must've put something in his mouth to give him that lung infection. 
That's what I told myself. That's how my mind turned on me and snapped. And I started telling myself I was the reason everybody else was dying. At that point, I was assistant chief on the fire department. And uh, I stepped down. I stepped down into a captain role, you know, a yellow helmet, into not making any trainings, not making any meetings, not making any of our fundraisers, just not wanting to be around the fire department anymore. And I made the excuse that I was too busy at the shop. And in fact, I was isolating. I started doing a lot of meth, a lot more meth. And uh, I just pulled away from everybody, my family. On holidays, I'd, I'd, I'd sit in the hotel rooms or I'd just stay away from them. I, I wouldn't be around them because I, I just felt like I was, I was broken. I was damaged. And I couldn't understand what was going on with me. The alcohol use was out of control along with the meth. The anger was on a scale of 1 to 10. It was probably an 11. Um, and then in 2012, my girlfriend had enough of it. And she moved out. And she took my sons with her. And that's when I decided I had nothing else to live for. So I uh, started spending all my time down at the shop, which is about a block and a half away. And I started doing a line of meth an hour because every time I closed my eyes, I was having nightmares about stuff. And mainly it was my kids. So I decided I wasn't going to close my eyes and go to sleep until I was dead. And that's when I started to snort meth, a line every hour minimum to stay awake. And I did that for two years and still ran the shop. I, I wasn't the meth head that, that you, you, know, you see on the news or you see in these pictures that are all scabbed up and all wired out. Somehow I kept a balance of you know, fruits and vegetables. I still ate, but it was all real sugary fruit. And, and maybe that's just something... You know, God had a lot to do with this because I, I didn't eat stuff like that before, but my body craved it. And, uh, I mean, it was nothing for me to go down to the shop. And my morning routine at 6 o'clock or whatever, before all the customers would come in, I had three picture frames, large picture frames around the shop in different rooms. And I'd load those up with meth lines, lines of meth. That was my daily, my morning routine is to make sure I had enough meth for the day. And no matter what room I ended up having to go to, I had enough meth in that one room to last all day. And, you know, in case, because I couldn't obviously do it right in front of my customers, but I could sneak back to the parts room and I'd have them all hid back there and I could snort a line, come back out and I'd be fine. And I did that for two years. And, um, and then in 2014, July of 2014, when I went over to my girlfriend's apartment, I uh, was in there and I, I blew up at them and the kids and her and and I didn't understand why. Where was this monster coming from that was inside me that I couldn't control anymore? And I never physically hit him, never physically hurt him, but the words, the verbal abuse, and telling them that they were just freeloaders and things like that, and that I deserve better and. I, it was just, it was so, so mean to them. And I left that apartment after yelling at them and I went down to my shop and I told myself, 
I've got to stop this monster. I've got to stop this before I do physically hurt them or somebody else. Because my anger was, I mean, I easily could have been homicidal. Just, you know, on, and I don't tell a lot of people that, but I know at one time I could have been easily triggered and, you know, I caught myself in time, but it's scary how far you can go when, when, when mental health takes control in the meth and you're spinning out of control. But that day, I went down to my shop and I said, I'm going to stop this. I'm not going to allow me to get to that point. And I sat down at my desk. I reached in my drawer, grabbed my 44 Magnum revolver, put it to my head, and I squeezed the trigger that fast. And it clicked. I chose that gun because it's never failed. It's never misfired. And it clicked that day. I threw the gun down. I literally climbed the desk behind me, thinking that gun was going to go off sitting on the desk, that it was a delayed reaction or something. And, and after a little bit, it didn't go off, so I, I jumped down, unloaded the gun, and I noticed that none of the primers were touched. And on a revolver, the hammer comes down. It's, you know, unless it's unloaded, you know, it's going to touch those primers to click. And there wasn't any dimples on the primers. And I sat down and I couldn't believe what just happened, what I just did. I admit the lowest feel I've ever had in my life of giving up on people. But at that time, I was also thinking I had a million-dollar life insurance policy sitting there that would have paid out on suicide. And I'm sitting there thinking that's all I could give them. They could move on with their life. My kids could get a good dad instead of, instead of who I was. You know, my mind was so messed up. And as I sat down at that desk, I started typing on a keyboard on a Google search. And I typed in anger, nightmares, flashbacks, drugs. And I hit enter on a Google search and PTSD lit the screen up. And I couldn't believe what I was seeing because I've never been in the military. I thought PTSD was a military thing. And when I opened up the site, it was a Mayo site actually, it showed veterans and first responders high risk and I, I got angry because nobody on the fire department talked about PTSD I didn't even know what PTSD stood for and there it was right in front of me I was looking at all the symptoms and it was like I was looking in a mirror I had them all you know other than the combat ones but I, I just felt like I was cheated how could people be around me and not see this I went from a ch assistant chief down to a yellow helmet down to hate and firefighters in a matter of six months. I, I just, you know, and, and I started thinking how many other firefighters are going through the same thing I am right now. I've seen a lot of signs and symptoms in the other firefighters. And I, I decided to do something about it. So I started studying PTSD and I, like I said, I had no idea what it was. I couldn't even get the letters in order when I'd tell people later on, you know, for about a week or so, I couldn't get the letters in order, right? But I studied it that day and all night, and at 8 o'clock in the morning, I was watching the clock all night long because I had to go over and explain what was going on to me. I had to tell my girlfriend, my ex-girlfriend, I had to tell her I have PTSD, and here's all the things that I can do to get better. There was therapy out there. Explained it. I mean, walked me through it. It's like, you know, this makes sense now why I'm so messed up and I'm, I don't have a split personality. 
So eight o'clock in the morning, I go over to my ex-girlfriend's house and or my, her apartment. And as she opened the door a little bit, I pushed my way in and I was screaming. I got PTSD. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I was screaming and my arms were waving and I was excited because I had the answer to what was wrong with me. And I could get some help. I felt like for once I had a fighting chance and it was explained to me by doing some research what PTSD really was. And that it wasn't really something that was wrong with me as much as what I experienced. And as I, I, I was in there yelling that I have PTSD, my arms waving, I was, I was just so excited. And there was so much passion in me for the first time in many, many years that I was scaring them. Like my ex-girlfriend was backing down the hallway and my two sons were behind her and they were looking around her. And I, th I think they thought I lost it. That was going to, I was going to hurt them. That was there to hurt them and physically hurt them or, or that I, you know, just snapped and went off the rub mile off my rocker. And when I left there, I went back down to the shop and on my desk, it's a big horseshoe desk. And I had to walk around the end of it and the gun was still laying there and the, and the six rounds were laying there and, and I, I remember looking at the gun like, man, my kids are never going to trust me again. I might as well just get this over with because it was a mistake that I was alive. Instead, I sat down at my desk and I started making some phone calls. I'd gathered phone numbers over the years of suicide hotlines, of other helplines that I received from some or some firefighters that gave them to me when I asked. And... Uh, I ended up calling a suicide hotline 12 times and nobody answered. And then I went on to calling the three phone numbers that I got from the fire chief years ago, years, you know, five years or so prior to this. And, and I called all five of those and they were all disconnected, no longer in service. And these were set up for firefighters and first responders. And then I called a friend of mine that was a police officer and, I told him what I did. I told him I tried to kill myself and that I need to talk to somebody. I need some help. I need, I need somebody to go talk to my ex-girlfriend and explain what PTSD is because my kids, I was so worried that my kids were never going to talk to me again that I felt so alone. And this police officer, which, you know, must not have had too much training with mental health, said that he was going to come out and pick me up and they were going to take me to the hospital and lock me up. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing from reaching out to a friend of mine. And he's, that's, that was his response. And I'm sure that's how their training is. You know, I mean, they got to go by the book or how they're trained. So, I mean, I don't hold no grudges against them. But after he told me that, I told him I've got, I got two more phone calls to make. If they don't work, he can come out and pick me up. I'll call him back. Well, when I hung the phone up, I went and put my propane tanks and settling tanks in my shop. And I had a SKS rifle that I had sitting in the office. I loaded up and I sat on the sat on the desk. And my whole outside of my building and inside of my building had surveillance cameras. And I sat down and waited because I figured he was going to come out and try to arrest me for telling him I tried to kill myself. So I waited and I watched the monitors and no police officers. Thank God, no police officers drove by just by accident. Even though I'm on a daily route or something, if they would have drove by, I would have blown the shop up with me in it. You know, not trying to hurt the police officers by no means, but I wasn't going to be locked up like an animal. 
after a while, I realized they weren't coming out. So I, I made another phone call that was on my list. And this one was on the whiteboard in our fire hall. And they told us if we need to talk to somebody, call this lady. Here's the phone number. She'll get you some help. You know, so if you're struggling. And I didn't understand what they were even talking about, struggling. But I called that phone number and I got a hold of her. Told her I tried to kill myself. Told her I need to talk to somebody. I'm not safe. And she set me up for an appointment for a week and a half out. And I made the appointment, hung the phone up, and I knew I wasn't going to see sunset. Nobody was there. Nobody cared. That's what was going through my mind is I'm in this alone, and I'm not going to make it. The last phone call on my list was a shared load program through National Volunteer Council and uh, American Addiction Centers. And in July of 2014, I called that number, the last number on my list. And I was looking at my gun laying on the desk, thinking I'm going to be loading this gun up within a minute, and I'm going to end it. I'm going to keep pulling that trigger till it goes off. And it rang a couple times, and the guy on the other end of the line answered. And I'm not really sure. Well, I know I was, I was yelling into the phone that I have PTSD, I tried to kill myself, I need some help, I need some somebody to talk with. And the guy calmed me down, talked to me, told me I was going to be okay. He told me he's there for me. He said, Scott, I've got you. And it was like he reached through the phone and picked me up in his hands. He said, we're going to get through this together. Finally, somebody was listening, somebody was there for me. We talked about PTSD. We talked about addictions. We talked about therapy. We talked about something called EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And he helped me find a phone number in my area that I could call and set up an appointment. And these calls went on all day with, with him and, and a a police chief from Chicago and a fire chief from New York. They were there for me. They were helping me for days after this get, get back to, to understanding what was going on and that I was worth something and that suicide wasn't the answer, that they'd be there for me. But the amazing thing was is I got an appointment for the very next morning in Fargo, North Dakota, an hour away to start EMDR. And I had no idea what EMDR was because they told me it's this deal that works for first responders. You know, we got to get you into a therapist, into a counselor, whatever we got to do. We got to get you some help. And they helped me with that. They got me the phone numbers. You know, I had to make the phone calls but to set up the appointments, but they helped me find that stuff. And I studied EMDR again all night because I had an appointment the very next morning. I was high on meth all the time, so I wasn't sleeping. So when I looked into this EMDR on YouTube and I Googled it and and man, it looked like witchcraft. It looked like this stuff's not going to work. This is just mumbo jumbo. They're going to put a light bar in front of me and I'm going to be all better. I didn't believe in it. But I told myself I've got to do something because the route I'm on is, is, is going, it's going downhill again. And I've got to do something to turn this, this ride around and get better. I went to my first two EMDR sessions and we talked. Then the third one. 
they told me ahead of time that we're going to try doing this processing. They're going to put a light bar in front of me. They explain what they're going to do with the vibrating pads on my legs. I'd hold them on my hand and we'd start processing some stuff. And up till that point, I told myself it was, it was a girlfriend. It was an ex-girlfriend or something that did this to me. Because I was numb. I didn't have any feelings. I couldn't love anybody. I felt all alone and cold. And I figured it had to be a girl that did that. It's, it sounds so weird that I'd blame everything on a girl, but that's, that's the person I was back then. I blamed my problems on everybody else. And as we started processing, actually that day I went to the village, I knew we were going to start to process. I was sitting in the parking lot and I was shaking. I was so scared of what they're going to open up and, you know, that they're, they're going to find something out about me or something, or they're going to hypnotize me. I didn't know what was going to go on. I did three huge lines of math in the parking lot before I went into that building because I couldn't do anything without math. I, I, my world's revolved around it. I went in there, did the processing. And during the processing, when we were trying to talk about ex-girlfriends or I was trying to find out what was going on there, all of a sudden the car accidents came out. And I started talking about the car accidents for the first time. See, we didn't do any debriefings on the car accidents or any of the fatalities. We'd, we'd maybe meet for a little bit, but not a formal debriefing or anything that, that we could really sit down and get down deep into it and find out what's going on with us or what we're feeling or what we're, what we're thinking. And there I was debriefing, basically doing the EMDR and processing my thoughts. When I got done with that, I'm not sure if we closed it out right. I, I'm pretty sure I lied to the guy and uh, told him I was feeling better. I was back in my good place, and, but I wasn't. There was so much that we opened up that on the way home, I started noticing houses that I didn't notice on the way there. Or I hadn't noticed for years. They, they weren't there before, I didn't think. And Sunflower Field, I was going by and and it was all yellow heads in the sunflower field. And there was a dirt road next to it. And I, I mean, I just started crying because I noticed I was starting to see colors again. And they were bright. They were like neon signs. And before I did my EMDR, my world was dark and gray and shadows and black and white and just lonely and cold. And I started seeing colors. I, I, it, I didn't have the tunnel vision anymore. The blinders were off and I could see things. And I walked into that sunflower field, and I just, I mean, I couldn't believe how incredibly beautiful it was. And I was right in this, right up next to these sunflower heads, and I was studying them. And the gallons of tears I cried that week because I was walking away from meth. Those three lines of meth were the last three lines of meth I've done. I walked away free, free and clear all by myself, cold turkey. And it's because I started processing things, and I, I didn't need that unhealthy coping skill to keep myself awake anymore because I started to allow myself to sleep and the nightmares disappeared, not all at once, but over that month, things changed a lot. And I could dream. I could think positive thoughts. And it's like I got rid of the crud in my brain that was keeping me from absorbing good positive thoughts again. And and I started picking up on all that stuff. I started thinking positive. I started feeling amazing. I started feeling like I was so young. 
I felt like I was 21 years old or 18 even, and I was 46 years old. And after I got done with my my month's worth of therapy, I was feeling really good. They didn't feel that they need to do any more on a weekly basis. But one day after that therapy, I was sitting in the driveway with my sons, and and I told them, I, I pointed at the picnic table, I said, you know, when I was 18 years old, I used to jump over picnic tables. And I, you know, I was showing off to the girls, whatever, you know, I used to hurdle over them. And I told my sons, I said, watch this. And I got out of the car and I, 46 years old here, I go try to jump a picnic table. And I almost made it. <laughs> Came really hard, man. I, I can't believe I didn't break my leg or my ankle. Hobbled back to the car and my sons was like, oh, that was pretty cool, dad. And I'm like, I, I used to always do it. When my neighbors were out in the yard and they're like, oh, Scott lost it again. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, this is embarrassing. But that's how good I felt. And actually, two weeks after that, I I started stretching out. And two weeks after that, I actually I jumped that picnic table at 46 years old. And I'm calling it good. I'm not going to try it again because that first time wasn't a, wasn't a good feeling. But it just felt so good to be young again. I mean, I felt young again. I felt alive. And it's just that therapy has been out there for a long time and, and the help was there. I just had to search a little bit for it at the time, but now it's a lot more available than it was back then. And to get my life back on track and to be able to smile and feel, I talked to my pastor a lot. And, um, some of the things that I was going through was, you know, in a month's time, how could I change so fast? How could I go from being suicidal and hating life? And cursing at God that he was so mean to me and he was putting me through all this and, and begging him to kill me, begging God to kill me and cursing at him. Going from that to being able to be alive and see everything on the out. I mean, go outside and pick up a leaf or just go for a walk or look at the trees and I, the stuff I couldn't see before. And, and in a month's time, my life turned around. And I had freedom and I had a, a I had a feeling in my heart again. You know, I could I could love again. And the guilt started disappearing. I mean, there was a new guilt that started showing up, though, as survivor guilt. Because as I started speaking out about it, you know, I came, came in contact with a lot of people that had lost people, lost their loved ones because of the same method I used. And why was I alive and why weren't they? You know, why, why did I survive? Why couldn't have I died and it? their kid could have lived? So there was continuing therapy for that that I had to deal with. And, but I went from being a shop owner to not even wanting to be in that shop anymore. It was like it was, a, it was the route I wasn't supposed to be going down at the time. And I lost my mechanic skills, which sounds really weird. But whenever I started working on cars, it was like, I just couldn't do it or I was making all sorts of mistakes or, or even if I was doing things right, it just didn't work out. And it was almost like I was told, you know, in my mind, I was like, okay, this isn't where I'm supposed to be. And I'm supposed to be out there speaking. I'm supposed to be out there talking to people. I'm supposed to be out there helping in a different way. And, and I, I started getting into mental health a little bit. I, I not, not like I tried to, people just started calling me. People that were hurt and people that 
were in similar situations where they reached out for help and they couldn't find any help or felt nobody would nobody would trust them or they couldn't trust anybody or they'd be judged. So a lot of first responders started reaching out to me and I just listened. You know, listening was 90% of it. And a lot of times nobody ever listened to them, listened to their story or listened to what they've been through, never did debriefings. You know, and, and I was somebody safe that they could talk with. It was all confidential. And and yet I was a stranger, but they knew my story. So they really opened up and started talking. And next thing you know, I ended up in the mental health field and started working in mental health crisis stabilization and answering crisis calls and and um, became a peer support specialist and a mental health practitioner now. And <laughs> it's it's just a whole new route. I, I don't even know what size engine's in my car. <laughs> I, I, I used to be a motorhead. And now I, I don't change the oil in my car. But it's it's just amazing how things can change and your life can come back. Um, in 2014, when we're in Fargo Christmas shopping, this is after like three months after my, couple months after my therapy, I was Christmas shopping with my son. And I, I remember the corner and everything, just like it was yesterday. I looked over at him. I said, I'm so glad that gun didn't go off. And he looked at me and said, Dad, the gun did go off. It killed the bad dad. You know, and for him to be able to see that, he was like 13 years old at the time. For him to be able to see that and understand that I had changed and he witnessed it, that made me feel so amazing and so happy to be alive, to be there with him. You know, there's, there's been a lot that we've had to rebuild because of the things I've said, and I can't take those words back. I wish I'd have reached out for help. I wish I'd have found help earlier. And hopefully now, you know, in the last six and a half years, I hope that things have changed a lot and that services are available more and designed for first responders or for whatever culture that you're, you're struggling that, that there's therapists and counselors that are set up for that culture, no matter if it's first responders or, you know, even immigrants coming in, they've got a whole different background that, that we don't know about, that we're not used to. And, you know, it's, it's a different culture on everything. Kind of went a little long on that, sorry. No, you went exactly the right time. So I want to start by saying thank you. Thank you so much. Because I, again, I know, I know the toll it takes, you know, when someone tells a story. I know there's a certain element of release, but at the same time, you're also reliving those memories. So thank you for, you know, having the courage to tell it. And thank you for giving us uh, an insight into the, the minds of so many of these men and women that we have lost. You know, you're not by far the first person that's pulled the trigger and it hasn't gone off. Some have even had a dimple in, you know the the casing, and it still didn't go off. It's it's amazing how many times I hear that now. But there's so many things that I want to you know can unpack in a minute. But you know the the road to that shows this cumulative element, you know, and and the desperation and the the lack of help at the very end illustrates how important it is for each and every one of us to be that that first responder to our you know men and women, that peer support element, that that friend, that fellow human. And when that, you know, that catastrophic series of events, um, 
you know, combined of, of the hotlines not answering and the people in your life not being there, not blaming, but just, it just, it really does illustrate the fact that we do have an opportunity to say these men and women, but we have to be looking for it. We have to be creating an environment that makes it as easy as possible for people to reach out. And, and obviously the stigma is part of that, but also just, just being there for each other, refining re that human element, which sadly I think is being stripped away at the moment. Um, but that is the most, you know, important part of this whole story. I mean, you, you found yourself in the mental health profession, but all of us can be there. We don't have to be a psychologist, a psychiatrist. No, we just have to give a shit. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, something that, that this actually just came to me a couple of weeks ago, I woke up in the middle of the night and that accident scene, that, that last one that snapped me where that three feet of water, it was an SUV and it was dark, it was cold, the back window broke out. So that ice water went in there immediately. He had time to unbelt all his seatbelt, but he didn't even realize he was probably upside down. The car was in gear. So the doors were automatically locked. If he would have only known that he was upside down and could have got to the floor of that vehicle, there was most likely an air pocket there. So what I keep telling people is here, I'm, I'm trying to show you where the air pocket is. There's resources out there. Find that air pocket before it's too late, before you're in that ice water, before it's too dark. Find that air pocket. There's help out there to help you get there. Absolutely. Well, so one of the first things I want to talk about is you talked about, you know, finding yourself using meth. And it's such an interesting perspective because it's not a drug that we hear talked about a lot. Now, I've lost one of the the men from my last fire department. Um, it was an overdose. And I know that he was, I don't know if he used meth, but I know he was using Adderall, um, and which is legal meth, you know. And, and it's because it's prescribed, everyone thinks it's safe, but it's not. You look at the history of Adderall, uh, and deaths, it's horrendous. And another one that's even more accepted is alcohol. But each one of these are lent into by many people who are struggling mentally. And each one of those, ambient, Adderall, um, alcohol, and obviously meth, is completely disrupting sleep as well. And you illustrate it with, you know, multiple days without sleeping. So you add that mental turmoil you've already got with the psychosis created from sleep deprivation, you have the perfect storm for as you said, homicide or suicide. And you're not the first person on the show that said that they almost killed someone when they were in the depths of this depression. So we look at these murder-suicides and we say, well, how could we? How could they do that? I said, like, well, the, the real person wouldn't. But where they found themselves through this, you know, this domino effect of, of bad decisions and then, you know, lack of education on what they were doing to themselves resulted in this place where they weren't thinking straight. And, and the, the theme I've heard over and over again from the suicide element is that these men and women get to the point where they feel that they are a burden to their family. So the suicide isn't a cowardly act. It's actually a selfless act in the way they're thinking. Now, is that reality? Of course not. But the, the drugs, the, the, you know, the PTSD, the sleep deprivation, all this perfect storm reprograms the mind to think in a complete 180 of what a healthy mind would actually think. Yeah, you know, and, and like when I went into the unhealthy coping skills of doing, of self-meditating, or self-medicating, I'm sorry. Um, you know, it, it's odd how once I got the therapy, once I got talking about this, once I released it, I didn't need that crutch anymore. In fact, I, I still drink. I still go to the bars. I don't drink in the dark bars. I don't go to the, I don't sit in the room and drink by myself to, to numb the pain. 
I go to the bars and I socialize. My, I mean, I'll leave half a glass of beer or half a drink on the bar, and it's like, I would have never done that before. I would have guzzled them as fast as I get them. But now it's interesting how now I go into the bars and and something happens. I mean, either they ask me what I do for a living, and we get talking, and they open up and start talking. And, you know, so, I mean, I told my pastor this. I said, I feel guilty because I still go to the bars. And he tells me, Scott, you know, that's where you're that's where God wants you. That's where you can do the most good. And I've noticed that, that once people start opening up and talking, they hear others have been through this. And maybe they should talk to a therapist, you know, about whatever. Because, I mean, they'll sit and tell me some of the darkest secrets of their life. And, it's, you know, it's, it's almost like I'm a stepping stone for them to get to a therapist. And, it, you know, I never thought once I stopped doing meth and I sobered up for a while, but I found myself back in, you know, socializing. I never thought I'd be in that position to be helping people in a bar. Just, you know, it just doesn't, I know it's just a weird setting for me to be in sometimes. Yeah. Well, but, but it's, it's, um, you know, it's moderation though. Like if you find yourself drinking to sleep, if you find yourself drinking to forget, to numb so sort of pain, to feel again, whatever it is, um, then, you know, that's not an alcohol issue. That's a mental health issue. Alcohol is, it's like the whole, you know, gun discussion. No, a gun locked in a safe isn't going to kill anyone, but a gun in the hands of a homicidal maniac is absolutely going to kill someone. Same tool, yep. different circumstance. So, you know, that's what, what I, one of the reasons why I, I talk a lot about drug prohibition, because I know, you know, the, the firefighter I lost was, you know, doing it in the shadows because his addiction was illegal. He was ultimately heroin that he was on. And so, you know, we're, we're demonizing mental ill health through addiction yeah. and sending our men and women into the shadows where now they're in the hands of, you know, the, the illegal drug trade. So the sooner we understand that there are mental health challenges for almost anyone on planet Earth and is the, is the possibility of it being more acute or, you know, or chronic over a long time in the medical field, in the coroner field and firefighting and military, whatever it is. Absolutely. So we, we need to be educating from the beginning. We need to have a, a understanding and a good support structure through a career. And then towards the end, some of the best stories I've heard are where they give mental health coaching at the end when people retire and transition out. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And, and the root, uh, I think the root to most addictions is mental health. I mean, if, if you know, if, if you've got your, I don't know, for a better word, shit in order, and you've done the debriefing and you talk about this, and, you know, because now I probably have 10 times more stuff on my shoulders than I did back then as far as I hear so many stories on a daily basis from people and then suicides, suicidal people that have called and, They've got the means in their hands, and I'm all they got. I mean, the only phone call they've got left. But I found healthy ways to, you know, wind down. Or even at work, I've got an hour-long drive, and that's a blessing to get home. And I just, I don't listen to the radio. I just sit there, and I just process stuff, and I let it go. And I'm not going to let the stuff get stuck in my head anymore, you know, because people aren't telling me about their journeys or about what they're going through. They're not telling me to dump it on me. That's the last thing they want to do. And I let them know that, that it's safe to talk to me. I see a therapist. I go, you know, when I start getting my buckets full, I go get some help. It's about uh, self-care. 
Absolutely. Now, with the the, uh, the hotline issue, obviously, that's a big part of your story to me because you, you know, were asking for help, and and it was it was failing, you know, at every turn, and it's no different than so many other stories I've heard, Dustin Hawkins and many others, where they've gone through EAP, a lot of these uh, career firefighters, and it's the same thing, you know, either. They've been thrown out of offices before. I can't help you get out. Or the therapist has burst into tears because they've never heard a firefighter talk before. You know, so then you've got these people in crisis. And you're like, well, there's the final nail in the coffin. Even these professionals think I'm fucking crazy. So I'm just going to go yep. and finish the job. So with that experience then, with you being involved in the mental health field now, what, what do we need to do to try and minimize those kind of events happening again? I would love to see every department get their not not just their own peer to peer support, but countywide peer support and statewide peer support. Um, I, and it doesn't have to be the fire chief. It doesn't have to be somebody wearing a captain helmet on the fire department. It can be anybody on the fire department. Somebody that people feel safe going and talking to. Get them trained. Send them to some peer support training. You know. Trainings. I mean, the one I went through is a long, long one. It wasn't just a couple day course. I'm a certified peer support specialist. That's, you know, that's a little more intense, but get them the basics, let them know about listening and find the right person. You have to find, you can't just take anybody out of the fire department and send them to this, or they can't just volunteer because they have to have the right personality. You know, judgment is, you know, if if somebody's going to go to them and feel like they're going to be judged, they're not going to be talking to them. And we have to make it okay. I mean, the leaders, I'm not the only one that's gone through this. Definitely. You know, I know there's leaders out there because I hear it all the time when I'm done speaking. They'll come up to me, the chiefs or the captains, like, man, you hit it right on the head. I went through this. And how long have you told your fire department? I'm not going to tell them. A leader will share that. I mean, if they're not going to judge you and think you're any weaker because you you went through something and you, you got help and you got your, your house back in order, that's that's a lot of strength. And that opens up the door to let them be human and let them come and talk with you. They'll feel safe talking with you because you've gone through it. I couldn't agree more. I absolutely couldn't agree more. And I've heard that over and over again with with you know many of the friends that I've had now who have done just that. And you know some of them, the first time they've told the story publicly was on this podcast. And then after they said, you know, all these people from my department started kind of pulling me over to one side and saying, hey, I'm going through a similar thing. What did you do? You know, and, and, and that's just it. This facade, as I was saying before, that we're all yan and no ying is is insane. So I think that absolutely the, the courageous and true uh, mark of a leader is to show that you're vulnerable. Be vulnerable and and tell your story, and then it gives everyone else permission to say, "Okay, phew, thank goodness, I'm not supposed to be like Rocky and Schwarzenegger. Then I can be a normal human being, and then and then you know open the door for that discussion." But to 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 be on your high horse saying, "Oh, if anyone's got mental shit going on, just just come talk to me," is it's not going to work. They're just going to you're 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 masquerading as someone who's impervious to that, so that's not going to invite conversation. But like so many of these amazing, you know, let's just say men on this particular example, alpha males, Navy SEALs, you know, these elite performers that have come on here and told this, the, the side of their story where they were vulnerable, that's saved probably more lives than they ever did with a rifle. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the man thing because those macho wannabe macho guys and we have to show all this strength. I've had so many guys reach out to me that have been struggling 
and, and women, you know, actually there's been a lot of women too, but I've talked with them and I've had their significant others or spouses call me up and say, I don't know what you did to them, but it's awesome. You can talk to them anytime you want. I mean, the relationship has gotten stronger. You know, they, they can show their feelings and emotions again, and they don't have to be put up on this pedestal and have to be this strong person all the time. And that's draining. And, and as first responders, we're go, 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 go. We got to be action, action, action. Sometimes we just have to sit down and be present with somebody and let them talk and listen. Absolutely. It's interesting because around the same time when you were going through your struggles is when I first was kind of introduced to it myself. And, you know, it was partly through funerals, sadly, and partly through, you know, podcasts and and you know, there's this kind of organic growth that that led to this this podcast and, you know, ultimately the book as well. But um so many of the people that first came out were the muscular, tattooed, shaved head, you know, men and you know, obviously not, not so much shaved head women, but you know, that that kind of, of, of firefighter, it was the alpha. And that's because they were they were trying to conform to this this version of themselves that wasn't real. So some of the ones that were more connected to the emotional side had been able to offload in the firehouse, to so be able to communicate maybe with their spouse or whoever their go-to person was. But some of these ones were, I noticed it was a kind of common theme that the ones that were quote-unquote most masculine in, in the, the, the Hollywood facade type way were the ones that found it hardest to deal with how they were actually feeling. Yeah. And when they crash, they crash hard. I've, you know, I've, I've traveled around the country and I've had, I've had one, you know, very large city at a large conference that got up and he was swearing, calling me every name in the book. And I didn't even notice it was a big, it was a big event. And, and the directors of this organization even told me, I said, watch out for this guy. They know he's got some stuff going on. And the one person said, yeah, he's probably gonna be dead. He'll probably kill himself within the next two years. I'm like, would you guys hear what you're saying? Just because this guy's got this image is being so tough and rough and and later on that evening, I was walking down the hall going to meet somebody and uh, one of the directors, and we were talking about facilities they have available. And out of nowhere, this guy opens up the door and it was him. I, I mean, I knew it immediately. I didn't have to have a picture of him. And he grabbed me and we were in this room and the door no more and closed behind me. And I thought this guy was going to kick my ass. <laughs> I mean, he was a tattooed guy and big, I mean, big city firefighter, you know, full-time career firefighter. And the door closed and he lost it. He told me, he said, he came to this conference to say goodbye to everybody, and I ruined it for him. He said he's going home to, to kill himself, and he came there to say goodbye to everybody, and he, he was begging me to keep him from going home and killing himself. And right outside the door was somebody that could help him. I opened the door up, and we got him some help. He didn't go home after that conference. He went to get some help. You know, so it's just sharing your story. Talk about it. You know, let that one person might be so close, and you never know it. You know, because they put this image on as, you know, being this rough, tough firefighter or law enforcement or or you don't want to approach them because they're always angry or something. You know, just let them know you care. Let them know you're there. Let them know it's okay not to be okay. And be that strong person all the time. It's okay to show, you know, it's a strength to show, you know, to show that you're human sometimes when you get, you get kind of modeled into that and molded into having to be this rough, tough firefighter with a big beard or big mustache and tattoos and bulletproof. And same with law enforcement and, you know, all sorts of careers, doctors, lawyers, you know, it's, it's okay to be vulnerable. 
Absolutely. And again, just, just retrace your steps. Why did you start this profession? Was it because you wanted to just walk around punching and kicking things or was it because you actually cared? If you actually care about complete strangers, you've got to remind yourself you're allowed to care about yourself too. Yep. I mean, that's part of us. We're helpers. We're, we're out there to help everybody else. And we've got to step back and help ourselves. It's not, it's not selfish to put yourself first sometimes, especially with mental health. You can't help others unless you're in a good place. Well, speaking of that, that's a good segue. Thanks for spoon feeding me that. <laughs> I was going to ask you, um, when you got to that point, one thing that seems to be a re- reoccurring theme within a lot of the people that have told their stories was, was similar stories on here is, you know, there's the identification that something's wrong. Then there's the process of, of, of self healing, which is ongoing. Again, I think anyone's saying that they're all right. I'm, I'm done now for life. Everything's good. But getting to that point where where they have that strength again, but then there seems to be another phase of, of altruism when they find a purpose, a cause, whether they start a nonprofit, whether they become a counselor, whatever it is, that not only are they giving back, but that giving back is actually magnifying their own healing as well. So did you find that within yourself? Yeah, even just before this podcast, I got a message from somebody that said they... Uh they're starting some stuff in their own department now up here support in their own department. And they're, they're taking all the resources from all around the country and taking the best of the best and they're making their own program. But a lot of times it's out there. All you have to do is put your name on top of the page and they'll let you use their programs. But the ripple effect that I've noticed, you know, because after I get done presenting or something, I'll get lots of phone calls of people reaching out for help. But then down the line a year or so they call back and say, Hey, this happened because I listened to you speak. We, we started and developed a program in our fire department or on our police department or whatever with peers. And we're making it okay for people to come forward. And it's not just me out there speaking. There's lots of people out there speaking. And that's so important for people to get the word out that it's okay to reach out for help. And it takes a lot of strength, but it's, it's so rewarding. No, absolutely. And that's, that's what I've seen. So if you can get to that point where, you know, you're strong again the door then for you know the potential is amazing and it's so crazy that you had that experience with being a mechanic you know and it wasn't there's you know, no regrets i'm sure you, you had that whole time of of becoming a true you know master of your craft but then and i've had this same experience the uniform the uniform excuse me the universe slams the door in your face and you're like what the fuck that's that's yeah. my path what are you doing that's where i'm supposed to go and, and and it's not you know you have to take a step back and realize that it's showing you a different way now exactly and and i'm not saying i don't have bad days i do have bad days i've got you know it's just how i handle them now and if i you know i've got certain deals where if i get to a certain point i'm reaching out and i'm so fortunate to have people from all around the country again psychiatrists and that I've got a whole list of people I can call or my girlfriend that, you know, she picks up on it and I listen, she says, Hey, let's go for a drive. You know? Yeah. I'm listening. Let's go for a drive. She knows what the best medicine is and how to get me back on track. You know? So it's, yeah, it's just so important. But again, it goes back to us being the people helping everybody all the time. And it's hard for us to reach out for that help. And you just got to start being aware of, you know, even, even if you're, body aches, you know, if your neck's tense or something, anxiety, depression, whatever is building up, reach out and get that help immediately. Don't hesitate. And, and something else I share is, you know, if you get to the point where I don't want to bother them, they're sleeping. I don't want to bother them. They're working. They're probably not going to answer. You know, I'm not going to leave a message because I don't want to bother them and have them have to stop what they're doing and call me back. Put yourself 
in their shoes. Would you want your friend hurting and not calling you because they think they're going to be bothering you? I mean, it, we want people to reach out to us and be there for them. And so we've got to reach out for help too and, and let them help us, let them be there for us. And again, they don't have to be a psychiatrist. Like you said, it's just a friend to go out and talk with and go for a drive, do some hobbies together, whatever, you know, hunting, fishing. I mean, sitting in a fishing boat is therapeutic. Absolutely. Well, you, you hit on something that's one of my previous guests very recently said, and, and this, again, when you think about it, it's common sense, but it's something that we don't talk about. We do that kind of, you know, looking in the mirror, like, how am I doing? And it's hard because, as you know, as, as, as a firefighter, especially in the career side where you're just working, you know, year after year, that baseline starts falling and you have no idea, which is why you, you know, have retirees a year later come back looking 10 years younger. Because, you know, that's that baseline is just you're just getting beaten down, beaten down, beaten down. So one one of the things that they said, and I thought this was very important, was ask your family how you're doing. Ask them, am I behaving the same way as I did a year ago, five years ago? And if they're seeing a kind of, you know, a, a linear react, uh, relationship between time served and your mood, then that is a big red flag, too. Yeah, exactly. And, and the significant others, too. They say you've changed. You listen because they're going to be the first one to notice it. And same with on the fire department. If people are starting to avoid you, well, maybe it's because you're a crab ass all the time and you're barking orders. Yeah. Well, that's something that I've witnessed myself. I can think of many, many characters in my career working in several departments that, you know, would be termed as the asshole. And back then they were just that two dimensional. They were the asshole. But now with what I've learned, you know, looking back, I'm like, you know, what were they going through? Not what's wrong with them, but, you know, what are they dealing with? And so when you have that guy, especially someone who was, you know, I, I got a perfect example of a friend now in one of my previous departments who was the the light in the room. Not, you know, not the life of the party, the light in the room, the kindest soul that you would know, the friendliest person who I know has just been crushed by this job, always working in the busiest, busiest firehouses and, you know, is in a, in a very different, dark place now. And, you know, he talks about being angry with his family and those kind of things. And so, you know, it is anger, frustration and change in personality is a huge, huge red flag. And we can't shrug it off as, oh, that one's that person just decided to be an asshole these days. No, they're probably, you know, on on a track to somewhere very, very dark that might end up with them taking their life. Yeah. And that should be the red flags we should be taught to watch for. You know, especially when they make sudden changes within just a few years or or they love the fire department, now they're not making any meetings. Or they even walk up, I've heard this a lot with ambulance crews, they'll have somebody walk in one day and says, I'm done, I just don't want to do this anymore, and they'll walk out the door. It's like, you can't let them walk out the door like that. The, the job, you know, has has done some some damage to them. I know I don't like that word damage, but it, it's done something, and we cannot let them walk out and let them fend for themselves. We have, we're responsible for them. We have to make sure they're in a good place. The EAPs should still be available for them, you know. And I, I, I 100% back people that if they they make that decision, that's their decision. You know, it's no different than me being a mechanic, and all of a sudden I can't be a mechanic. It's you know, you got different different avenues you can go down. They can be a training officer. They could be a, going to a training part of art of, of it without having to be on scenes. I mean, there's so much experience you're letting walk out the door and and not catching it, and all the education that they have and you know there could be a different role or maybe a peer support even 
down the line, you know, if they if they are hurting and they need to get some help, get them that help. Don't let them walk out the door like that because it's not going to go away by itself. No, absolutely. Well, another element, again, that I've been exposed to more recently, but when I look back now, was absolutely a factor in, you know, in much of my frustration was the um, organizational stress. So especially some of these career firefighters that are the go-getter, that do have ownership, that do want to train diligently and be ready, but are up against it by their administration. You know, these these departments tell them, oh, you can't lie down, you can't sit down, you know, from this time to this time. It's just a complete disconnection between what we do and the stresses and, you know, what actually is the reality of the job. So what have you seen as far as that playing in? Yeah, as far as what I do for self-care, as far as what I do to help them? or No, just do, do you see that element factoring in a lot in, in you know, the uh, the as as a big factor towards mental ill health oh um i'm not really sure how to answer that <laughs> <laughs> um if i've never really thought too much about that okay no no, wow. no no problem at all what i see them from a career fireman you know is is there's a lot of frustration from the way things are done you know there's a lot of frustration especially in like my last department i'll be very specific being run by people who've never even been firefighters before. Oh, so there's such yeah. a huge disconnect. And you have some very passionate, in that department, very passionate, driven men and women, some who, you know, basically, I mean, a lot of us just freaking bailed. We just left the department because we were so sick of trying to deal with it. But that's a decision, that's ownership, that's a good mental health choice. But there are people that stay in those departments. And that element is one of the drivers towards even suicide. Yeah, the politics and things. Yeah, that's that's just, that is a serious concern. Going back a little bit, I kind of find it interesting too that when I when I went through my therapy and I talked to the fire department, I took a leave of absence, and I told them I can't be on the fire department until I get back to being healthy again, mentally. And it was it was really odd because as an assistant chief, I showed up to a car accident one day, and I don't remember this. But three of my firefighters came in and told me that, and they felt bad. It, you know, it's all three came in separate times. They talked with me and um, they mentioned that on this one scene that they should have noticed that something wasn't right with me because I met them halfway to the car accident. And I said, you guys stay away from this one. I'll take care of this. I'm already damaged. I'll take care of this. That's what I told them. And, and you know, I, they must have had a discussion about that, but no, nobody really went any farther because. Here I am, assistant chief, who's going to question me about it. You know, so I found that really interesting that they came back and told me about that and how bad they felt that they didn't step up and do something. But again, you got a firefighter coming to an assistant chief. That's that's pretty tough to do. You know, it's it's that level of uh, authority that, that scares people. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because actually the reverse is true. And I had this as a young, young fireman in, in Anaheim um, where – myself and my partner we came on the same time were dfo'd not to go and it wasn't responding to an emergency call we responded but it was to do body recovery of a three-year-old girl and uh they told us you know it was great leadership they said you're gonna see so much in your career you don't need to see this and and so their thing was they were literally both about to retire they were like you know we're, we're good for this one you've got an entire career's worth ahead of you let's not add this to your you know your rolodex so I thought, you know, 
from a leadership point, that was very powerful too. And I've talked about this before. There's no medals for seeing the most trauma. So if yep. you're on something where, you know, it, it, it's a fatality, it's something that you, you're not saving a life anymore by using those extra bodies, don't, don't expose them to it. They don't need to see that. You know, I had a body recovery of a cyclist, a, a motorcyclist of a semi. You know, he was, he was just mushed by that point. So that's a perfect example. I went up there and, uh, with a couple others and assisted the coroner. No one else on scene needed to see what we saw. You know, it was pointless. So I think there's that bravado in, in always wanting to see that shit. Well, that might seem like a great idea when you're young in your career, but further on, you know, there's only so many memories you can, can hold before things start kind of reaching a critical mass. Yeah. Yeah. I had so much respect for some of our firefighters and, and they were actually officers that said, Hey, you guys can go do that stuff. I'll sit back here with the engine, make sure you guys have water. You guys go deal with that. They don't want to see blood. You know, and I'm like, I have so much respect for that when they come out and say that. Because it's, it's, it's not that they're weak by any means. I have, you know, again, I want people that can be around that without them being, you know, going home or, or even having a flashback. You know, I don't know what, when this person told me this, I don't know what his history was with it, but he told me straight up he didn't want to be around that. And I had so much respect for that. Yeah, Absolutely. Right. Well, you mentioned about EMDR. It's one more area I want to touch before we, we kind of transition to some closing questions, but, um, which I've heard so many good things. And I know it's, yeah, it's not a be all and end all, but it seems to be a very powerful tool that works for a lot of people. Um, are there any other things aside from that that you found have been healing? You know, have you worked with horses, you know, canine therapy? I mean, any, any other, um, area that we, we hear is very effective that you've added to it? Um, I'd say right off the, right off that first month was most of it was EMDR and reaching out to my pastor. Um, I spent a lot of time with my pastor and he made time for me and I can't be grateful enough for that. Um, and I wasn't religious before this. I mean, I didn't go. That's the first time I ever sat down with a pastor one-on-one probably since I confirmed. So, I mean, it was for whatever reason I, that was the step by direction I went in. But after that, it was almost like I taught myself coping skills. And I just opened myself up to the world around me, but it was, it was like, I was like a kid in a, in a candy store. I mean, it was like, it was all brand new. I'd pick up a leaf and look at a leaf for hours and that two leaves aren't the same. You know, there no two leaves are the same. And that picnic table, I, I used to lay on the picnic table and just look up at the sky and, and watch the trees and watch the leaves blow back and forth and the bird and the clouds and listen. And there's a thing called grounding where you can use a five, four, three, two, one, where it's like five things you see, four things you hear, three, or three things you can touch, two things you smell, and one thing you taste. Um, you know, I, I just kind of self-taught myself a lot of that. Um, but yeah, down the line, I got a service dog, which, you know, it's a German Shepherd, and which is a story all in itself. His name is Sarge, and he's 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 definitely a lifesaver. Um, I did finally get him trained to be a service dog. After I started speaking, I was ready to give him up because it wasn't fair to him because I was out of town all the time. So I put the word out there with the fire department stuff that you know I'd like to get rid of him if somebody wants him, and they couldn't believe I was saying that because of how much of a difference in my life he made, but. They stepped forward and they paid for, they got in hold of people that took care of it to have them trained as a service dog. So if I want, he can fly with me. 
But when I was going through the service dog training and just after that, I realized I don't need them as a service dog to be by my side all the time. You know, when I'm done speaking, it's awesome to have them there to, to unwind and debrief with him and just to come back, you know, to the good place to ground myself. But something else after I realized he didn't need him for a service dog was he was picking up on anxiety and depression with other people. And I'd get phone calls to meet people someplace and especially females and I'd get there and they'd want to get a hug or something, you know, which is human. You know, we want, when we're hurting, we want to, you know, we want to hug or something or vice versa. We want to be left alone. But, um, but it got to the point where I noticed when I bring Sarge, they'd love up on Sarge. And when I was there without Sarge, they'd give me a hug and, there was a boundary issue there because next thing you know, especially with girls are like, they never, nobody's ever been nice to them. Some of these girls they have been abused. So all of a sudden they get a hug and I'm giving them time. And I had to work on that, like, you know, on the boundary part because I just wanted to help people. And it got me in some trouble where I actually had to get a restraining order against the girl. So it, it, it went backwards. So I, I learned a lot just by going through helping people too. But now Sarge comes out with me and when I meet, people in, in person and he does his thing. I don't know what it is. They start petting him and they start talking. And, um, it was about three years ago. Sarge actually pulled me 300 feet to a girl. I was committing suicide behind a building. Really? Yeah. He, he's got something. I don't know. It's, I mean, I, you know, like I said earlier, I, I got him on the other end of the house in a, in a room cause he's probably going nuts right now. He, um, I don't know. He just picks up on my energy, negative or positive. It's just, it's he, he's a special dog. It's amazing. I've got a German Shepherd too, and she's never officially been a therapy dog, you know, by any means. But I mean, again, the same way as as a pastor, as a human being, as well. You know, she's she's a, a dog, and and the same thing. Like when I have had, you know, moments where I've been low, like uh, I had an issue with my little boy. I mean, she was. Uh, and she was right alongside me. So yeah, they are they are so uh so in tune with us. If you know, if you've raised them properly and, and treated them right. Um so yeah, I mean whether whether it's an official therapy dog or whether you're just interacting with your family pet, it's uh it's an amazing bond. Yeah. And the neat thing is that Sarge kind of picked me. I was when I first went for a service dog, I was supposed to get a silver lab and they were just breeding a silver lab and I was supposed to get the pick of the litter free. And these are like thousand dollar dogs. And then they were going to help me train them from a pup. And and when I went out to watch these German Shepherds being trained, I mean, I, mean, I remember myself looking at them and saying, I don't want a German Shepherd. I want a hunting dog. And uh, my son happened to sit down next to this car, and Sarge was underneath, and he, he was a rescue dog, and he was just a pup. But I'm not sure what all he went through, but he was one scared puppy. And 10 minutes later, after him being under that car for three days, I looked back 10 minutes later, and he was sitting on my son's lap. And I'm like, oh, this is wonderful. <laughs> but it was either I bring Sarge with us or I leave my son there. So, it, you know, it's amazing how things worked out. And he's a beautiful dog. It's just, oh, he's, he's incredible. Amazing. Yeah, my, my one basically chose my son too. There was a, I forget how many were left in the litter. I think it was about four. Um, and my mom had always told me, oh, go for the calm one in the litter. And this one, she wasn't the calm one, but she was just on my son the whole time and he fell in love and he'd already named her by the time we we had to wait it was, it was she was too young to actually take with her then um but yeah he, that was it i knew all right that's the one that we're gonna get <laughs> she chose us 
Yeah, and if you ever see a picture of Sarge, he's got he's not a purebred by no means. We're not sure what all he is, but he's got the hugest ears, and they're a conversation piece in themselves. I mean, people walk up to me and say, "Your dog's got the biggest ears," and and we end up talking for hours. Beautiful. All right. Well, I wanted to transition to some closing questions so I can let you go. Um, the first question I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. Um, I don't actually read too much books. Um, yeah, so I, I, I'm not much of a reader. I've had a lot of authors give me their books and stuff, and I've I, I can't, I just don't have any recommendations on that. I'm sorry. I'm no, not much no problem at all. What about a movie or a documentary? Um, I, I really like, for some reason, I like, uh, I just absolutely love the green mile and I don't know, I'm not sure what it is, but I think in some senses when I was going through that therapy and where that guy was having the bugs come out of his mouth and that's what it reminds me of is how I was healing and, and, felt that that time and I just it's just a good movie and how life you know how you go through life living different and when you get older you have so many memories and and people die you know and you have to live through losing people but you're alive and it's memories absolutely I, I just wrote a book and I, I quoted that exact movie for that exact reason I, I one of the analogies I think is great is his character taking on everyone else's pain and disease in that particular choice. But there's a certain point where, again, you used this word a minute ago, but the critical mass. And, and he does that speech about being tired, tired of people being ugly to each other. And I think that's, you know, what a lot of our professions get to, you know, whether it's seeing deliberate or accidental, but, but pain, trauma, not only in the people that are hurt or killed, but in the families that are left behind. And there's only so much you can take unless you're offload and i think that's that's another thing too obviously in that particular case you know he he went to heaven you know but i think one one way that mental health isn't framed um is that post-traumatic growth we don't hear about that much but when you get through that um that healing whether you're offloading whatever it is that that, that you're able to use to overcome you know some of the things that you've seen and done and and, and experienced in these professions you're a stronger, more resilient version of yourself. So to view addressing mental health as weakness is insane because actually if you want to be the best firefighter, police officer, medic, then you constantly address mental health and therefore you're going to be an even more, you know, stronger, more resilient version of yourself. Yeah, yep, this, I mean, we do everything physically. We do everything education-wise, but we don't do enough mental health-wise. Another one would probably be uh, Shawshank Redemption to the quote in there where they say, uh, get busy living or get busy dying. Because that was a decision I had to make. Am I going to keep going this have this direction and die or am I going to get my house in order and do everything I can to be a better dad? Love it. Yeah, we actually went to that, the place where it was uh, shot, the prison, not too long ago, the Ohio Reformatory. So if you ever... Yes, if you ever know Ohio, you have to go see it. It's incredible because they just left it as it was. So when they shot it, it was still, you know, it, it just had been closed down. So it still looked like a functioning prison. Now it's kind of eerie because a lot of the the bars are rusted out, and you know, it's it's semi abandoned, but it's attached now to a museum. And there's the functioning new prison behind in, in a new facility. But you want to talk about a reg, you know, a, a person who's never been incarcerated getting to experience 
you know, what that must be like just for a microsecond visit that place. It is absolutely, you know, it's, 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 you know, heartbreaking, but very, very powerful at the same time. It's on my bucket list now. I was just there twice in Ohio, twice this month, and I'm going back in January. So I'm going to put it on my list for January. Brilliant. Yeah, let me know. <laughs> All right, next yeah. question. Is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Um, have you had Jeff Dillon? I haven't had Jeff on yet, no. Yeah, I think he'd be a good one. Um, you know, just he's got a lot of experience with it. Um, he's doing a great job with firefighter behavioral health. He does an awesome job. I see him at a lot of conferences and yeah, lots of good, lots of good knowledge there. Excellent. All right. Thank you. The next question, what do you do to decompress? Um, most of it's got to do with Sarge. I go take him for walks or go for drives. He loves going for drives. Um, yeah. And, uh, watch a movie. I, you know, most of it's walks. I just like getting outside. I mean, it's, it's so it's free. You know, you can go step outside. It doesn't cost a dime to step outside. And, and there's so much to see. I like traveling too. So like when I'm speaking or something, I try to take a time, time out in between just to go see the area I'm in. I love that. Brilliant. Yeah. My, uh, I'd say my, my daily mental practice is when I walk my dog, I leave my phone in the house and I walk my son to the bus stop and then walk for another like 30 minutes or so around this beautiful, you know, like area that we have where I live. And yeah, it's, it's completely, uh, resetting. Mm -hmm. All right. So then the last question, if people want to reach out to you, where are the best places to find you online? Um, they can go see in color again is I got a website, CNN Color again. Um, or they can just, uh, I'm on Facebook. Uh, and I'm also, if you just Google my name, there's a lot of stuff out there, um, articles and and some videos. Um, and then my phone number's out there too. So if, if anybody, you know, again, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm somebody that's lived through it. And... I don't have a big certificate on the wall. I get to be me. And I just, I just, I want to be there. If somebody's struggling, they can reach out anytime. I, I'm, like I said, I'm not a suicide hotline or anything. So there's no guarantee I'll be able to answer the phone. It might take a little bit to get, to get back to you. But you know, if you're in that situation where you need to talk to somebody, you can call, you know, there's share, share the load, safe call now, but you know, or you can reach out and talk to me. And and for for a hotline that someone you know you trust will pick up, which is, is your go to to give people? Um, right now, it's Safe Call. Now, it's answered by first responders. Um, yeah, it's it seems to be it's 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 weird because they, you know, Safe Call. Now, I just found out about a year year or so ago, and I've had really good luck with them. Um, but that's another thing is if you're if you're going to be out there helping people or if you're going to be talking with people or up here, make sure you make some phone calls to these hotlines, make sure they work. So you're not handing out a phone number that doesn't work or, or has been rerouted to something else. Um, because I mean, it could be offensive, pretty offensive if you're calling for help and they're like, well, we don't help with that. So you'll have to call somebody else and, and believe it or not, that does happen. So make sure you check the, Check the phone phone numbers you're giving out. 
and the people that you want to talk to, make sure you make sure you reach out and talk with them and make sure that it's okay that they take phone calls. Absolutely. Well, I just looked it up. So safe call now's number is 206-459-3020 for everyone listening. All right. Well, Scott, I just want to say thank you so much. Like every time someone comes on and tells, you know, a, a, a moving, powerful story like you have today, you know, I, I, A, I'm just so honored that you chose this show as, as one that you trust to tell your story. And B, I know the effect it's going to have. I see, I see the, the messages that I get, which I'm sure are a lot less than the ones that the people that come on the show get, but I see the power. I see, this is something that people want to hear. So for you being another person to step up here and, and have the courage to tell your story and then, and then you know, enter the mental health field as well, I just want to thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me on. <laughs>